0: Well good morning everyone. Good morning this half of the room Uh, and if you're joining us online good morning as well. Uh, Before we start my name is Randy if you don't uh, know me yet I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Bible Church and we take notes in these we were out I bought more. Uh, If you do not have a copy of this scripture journal Bible for the book of John Uh, We're about halfway through, so you'll still get lots of mileage out of it. Uh, There's more in the back. Please grab one, and you can use it to take notes uh, on our sermon today and moving forward as we continue through the book of John. Uh, But we are excited that you're here. Um, I'm excited that we get to uh, navigate uh, this passage, the raising of a dead man, uh, the final sign and display of God's glory through Jesus Christ in the book of John. You'll remember uh, in the beginning of this series, or if you're familiar with the book of John, John gives us a reason that he chooses these selective miracles to highlight uh, as uh, demonstrated in John chapter 20. And he says this, now there is many other signs, this is verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20, there are many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here in John chapter 11, we are reaching the seventh and perhaps most climactic display of God's glory through his son, Jesus Christ. The whole overarching point of the book of John, and indeed even this narrative here in chapter 11, is that the people witnessing this event, whether in person, or us reading it today, would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the man who God has sent into the world, who possesses power of life and death itself. Over and over, we see this repeated in the book of John, but today we have to ask ourselves, how do the events of this story show us the nature of what it means to believe in this man, Jesus? If he is the Christ, how might we respond? What does chapter 11 show us? And so there's four main uh, points that we're going to draw on that I pulled out of the narrative flow here. Uh, the first point is this, God's delays, uh, God delays his responses for our good. God delays his responses for our good. The second thing is God's response to our requests are not always what we expect. The third point, uh, God calls us to hope. And finally, God always hears our prayers. God delays his response for our good. God's response to our requests are not always what we expect. God calls us to hope. And finally, God always hears our prayers. This is breaking up in the form of the narrative. Uh, If you're following in your ESV today, which is what I have, or other uh, translations, we see the word now. This is a narrative flow. It means scene is shifting. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 17 And then again in verses 30 and 32. And so these are the various scenes that help us understand and see this story unfolding before us. And so let's begin with those first two scenes. John chapter 11 verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, "Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him." So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, "Let us also go that we may die with him." This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, As we look at John chapter 11 and we see uh, the way the narrative unfolds and points us to Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, we see the amazing work that you do through him. Uh, We see that he is revealed uh, to be the great Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that those words of Thomas at the end of verse 16, when he turns to his fellow disciples and says, let us go that we may also die with him. Lord, that as we hear your word uh, read this morning, as we let it seep into our hearts and our minds, that we would be filled with that same attitude, ready to go with you as our Savior, no matter the cost. And so, Father, might you encourage us through this word. Might you uh, bring life to us. Might you bring us into a state of hopefulness, in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Father, we thank you for this time, for your word, amen. And so as this story is unfolding, we see very quickly in this first uh, section that Jesus does not act as we would expect. He delays his response of uh, responding to the sisters' requests about their sick brother. Think about this. If you guys had a close friend, a relative, maybe a spouse that was gravely ill and somebody sent a message and said, you need to come, they are about to die, please come and visit them, you would immediately go and visit them. Whether that's locally or you need to hop on a plane and fly somewhere, you would do anything in your power to go visit them. In fact, that's the normal response of somebody that usually loves somebody deeply. But what do we see quickly as chapter 11 unfolds? These messengers come. Your friend, the one who you love, is ill. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm on my way. He says, I'll get there when I get there. And he meanders around for a few more days. Some see this as a cold response. Indeed, they might even doubt the love that Jesus has for this man and his family. Why would he wait to go see Lazarus if he actually loved him? If Jesus had the ability to heal sickness, why would he not immediately heal them? Some people reading this might even remember the story such as Luke 7 with the Roman centurion who has a servant that is ill. And he sends word to Jesus and says, my servant is ill. If you would only speak the word, he would be healed. No bother. You don't need to come and see him. Just say that he is healed from afar, and we believe that he will be healed. And we see in Luke 7, Jesus has the power to do that. He can heal somebody just by speaking the word, even from a great distance. And yet here in John chapter 11, Lazarus is sick, and Jesus simply does nothing for a few days. If Jesus truly cared about Lazarus, why is he doing nothing? Indeed, this is a form of the question at the end of the chapter as the people see Jesus finally visit the grave of this man and ask in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? But the answer to this is simple. Jesus waits because it's better for them that he waits. God delays his responses for our good. If he had acted immediately, they would have missed out on a great work of God. And so we read this and must ask, what is better? That this messenger comes, Jesus either goes and heals him immediately, or speaks a word and heals him from remote Lazarus, health is restored and this crisis is averted, or is it better for Lazarus and everybody else that's there that he dies and is resurrected? We see very quickly both end in these uh, uh, scenarios with Lazarus being healthy. Lazarus doesn't care. Hey, I'm healthy. Either way you want to do this, he's probably saying I'm good with. But for everybody else, this ends with a dramatic increase in faith because they have witnessed what has happened. It is better that Jesus doesn't heal him because for his good and the good of all these other people who are witnessing, they will come to believe who Jesus is and he will be revealed to him and to all of these people as the true son of God. How true is this though in our lives? We pray and we want immediate answers, do we not? We would miss out on much though if our prayers were often immediately answered. Instead, God waits for his good timing to bring the answers, which later in life we might look back on and realize they were for our benefit. But at the time, that patience is hard. Jesus says this very plainly in verse 15 here of chapter 11, for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. In a sense, Jesus is saying, if I was there in Bethany with this man, if I traveled and go, I would heal him and he wouldn't die but it's better. It's for your sake. It's good for you that I have not gone because you are going to see something great. You will have a result of greater belief and faith. No one likes being told to wait. If you have young kids, you tell them to wait even for something simple like a snack. I have a little boy. He turns two in like two or three wakes. He always, he wants two things, peanut butter, crackers, or bananas. Uh, So all he wants to eat is his entire diet and you tell him no and he will literally try to rip the door off my pantry to get at the bananas or the crackers. He does not want to wait. I might have a better meal waiting for him. I might have uh, some of the things that he likes like orange juice or a special uh, snack that that we would make. He doesn't care. He wants the answer immediately in his time. And in a much more sophisticated way, we as adults do the same thing. We pray, we see a need in our lives, uh, but we desire that immediate response. Why? Because we have corrupted desires. They're imperfect. We are imperfect people. And so we cry out to God and we want immediate responses, not realizing that if he simply waits, he has something better waiting for us. And this is a great truth we need to remember the delayed responses of God are not contradictory to his love. Instead, they are the greatest example of his love. He has something so much better often than we can even think of or desire. He will answer our requests according to his good time, the perfect time, and the time that brings us the greatest benefit. One scholar writes of it this way, Our natural response is to rebel against trials, whether they are physical illnesses or difficult situations, such as they are intruders that must be removed from our lives as quickly and painlessly as possible possible by every means available, including God's miraculous intervention. With hindsight, however, another perspective is possible. We can offer our trials to God for him either to remove or to retain, as he pleases, thereby bringing glory to his name, deepening our faith and possibly that of others. This opening section of John chapter 11, before we even see the story unfolding, reminds us so clearly that we can offer our requests to God, but the things that we might be requesting for him to remove, he might have brought into our lives for our own good. And so our prayer life can be molded and shaped and increased, I think, deeply when we look and say, God, you can take it or you can keep it as you please. Just shape me the way that you want to be shaped. Deepen my faith. Deepen the faith of others through the way that I deal with this trial. Hudson Taylor, who's a famous uh, Christian missionary, uh, says it this way. Trials afford God a platform for his working in our lives. Without them, I would never know how kind, how powerful, and how gracious he is. This is a wonderful truth. As we face trials of our own in our lives, God might not resolve them immediately, but they are unique and powerful opportunities for us to see how great, how powerful, how kind, even how gracious God is, even if he waits to answer our prayers. So the story continues though, John chapter 11, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So much faith that when Jesus arrives, she's grieving, probably very uh, sorrowful. She comes to him and says, Oh, teacher, if you had only been here, I know my brother would not have died. I know that you have the power and you would have healed him, that you would have made him well. But she's not resolved to grief. There's still a sense of hope that she has. She expects Jesus to do something great. She says, even now, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What does Jesus respond? Very simply, your brother will rise again. Martha doesn't understand the significance of this, though. She doesn't under, actually understand what is happening. In fact, she's quick to agree. I know he's going to rise again. She holds to the belief that even for Lazarus, death is not final. Like the pharisaical Jews, she believed in a future resurrection, right? There's a class of Jews that believe that a resurrection was happening. And so Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know there's going to be a future resurrection. Death is not final. I know he will rise on that last day. She expects that comfort, but not the one that Jesus is actually going to provide. In fact, this is highlighted by her objection when they finally get to the tomb and Jesus wants to open it. She objects to Jesus opening the tomb. She doesn't actually understand what he says when he says, your brother will rise again. But her misunderstanding is all part of this beautiful delayed response of God. Because her brother has died, she will now be able to more fully understand who this man really is. She has faith in God and it's great. And she has confidence that whatever Jesus asks of God, God will do, but she can't fathom who Jesus actually is and what he's actually about to do. And so Jesus' comfort to Martha with a promise that not just that her brother will rise again, but he continues with a profound statement. You believe in the resurrection of your brother? That's great. I am the resurrection and the life. She's probably paused a little bit about, what do you mean? Like, I know that there's going to be a future resurrection. What does it mean that you are the resurrection? Her confusion is understandable, and it's understandable for us. But what Jesus is beginning to reveal is there is no resurrection apart from me. We don't hope in a future resurrection. We hope in Jesus who provides the resurrection. It is only through Jesus that all of these things will happen. He is the great restorer and renewer. So when she comes to him and says, my brother is sick or my brother has died, he is saying, I alone possess this ability to resurrect him. I am the resurrection and the life. It is only through me that this can happen. And we're reminded here that the ultimate way that God comforts and answers our petitions and requests is through the promise of eternity through Jesus Christ. Regardless of how we might deal with hardships, suffering, conflict, and so much more, we have a promise that even if we perish, we will not be the end. We will continue to live. What does Jesus say? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And what's he asked Martha after this? Do you believe this? She says, yes, and has a confession of the lordship of Jesus. But the story begins to move. Martha has left to go get her sister who is mourning at the house. And in verse 30, we pick up the story here. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? As the story is beginning to build towards its climax, Mary arrives on the scene. And scripture quickly tells us that it's not just Mary. There is a great crowd of people that are with her. She gets up to leave the house and they think she's going to the tomb to weep there. And they're going to follow her. We might ask, why? Just let this poor lady be. Don't be that annoying person who's following them around, saying, "Are you okay? Are you okay? Is it gonna be okay?" Like, just let this lady grieve in peace. We have to understand funeral custom, and in Jewish culture back then, it was custom that even a poor family was supposed to require two or hire two flute players and a professional wailing woman. Right? What a job! Right? I'm a really good whaler. I can cry really loud every time. Uh, So the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would have done at the bare minimum this, Uh, but it seems very apparent from the text with uh, chapter 12 when Mary brings ointment to anoint Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume and the fact that there has been a great amount of people travel from Jerusalem that they are a fairly well-off family. They have some type of notoriety and uh, have some type of resources probably greater than the average person so to get this scene right we have to understand that there are people who are actually mourning Mary Martha maybe a close couple close family friends people from the village and then there's a bunch of people they've hired to travel around and to cry with them why is this it was a sign of great respect these professional mourners were supposed to cry in such a way that other people would feel bad and they would start crying right it's you know you go to a funeral and you don't cry you feel a little bad And so they would hire these people to literally come and be professional criers. Uh, And so we can assume that this presence of not just the actual mourners, but also professional mourners with flutes and things like that, would have resulted in a loud wailing. Right? This is a loud noise traveling. And so Mary arrives with these professional mourners behind her, crying, doing whatever they do as professional criers, uh, and arrive to Jesus. Mary has the same response as her sister. Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But her response here is a little different. Why? Martha possesses this sliver of hope. Even now, whatever you ask, I know God will do. Mary has none of that. Her response holds this tinge of being resolved to absolute grief. There's a sense of hopelessness hovering over her and amongst this large crowd. Mary does not seem to possess any hope for the situation like Martha had. And so Jesus sees her, he hears her, he hears this large crowd that has followed her, and he responds to her. And unlike with Martha, which he simply assures her, your brother will rise again, the resurrection is real, I am the resurrection, he comforts her with some great truths, with Mary, it's a different response. What happens? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Our English Bibles do us a tremendous disservice here. Absolute tremendous disservice. Coupled with the fact that Jesus cries shortly after and we read this verse, he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We are left with this picture of Jesus almost overwhelmed by grief. Like he's barely holding it together because he is so sad at the situation that has unfolded before him. But that's not the case at all. And in fact, we should expect that. He's obviously not grieving for Lazarus. He said multiple times he's going to come back from the dead. He knows exactly what he is about to do. He has great hope that he's in short while going to probably be giving this man a hug. He's not overwhelmed with grief like the rest of them because he knows what he is going to do. The Greek word that is translated greatly troubled has no sign of grief in it at all. In fact, this word is used only several other times in Scripture. Uh, and then in broader Greek culture, it's used to refer to the snorting of a horse's nostrils in war. Right? The, this word that is used in the Greek is a word that is meant to display anger against something, like we're coming, like I'm not going to handle this anymore, we are going to respond. And so instead, we should be reading this verse along the lines of Jesus became angry in his spirit. The, it's a word, this anger, that should leave us with a image of Jesus, not overwhelmed by grief, but a man who is outraged from the deepest parts of his being, from his inner spirit at the scene before him and so you're probably like me and you read this your whole life you've just assumed Jesus has been very sad uh, and you say okay why would he be angry if he's not overwhelmed by grief and in fact he cries two verses later the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept Uh, why is he having this anger aroused with him why is the deepest level of his being seeming to shake as he desires to respond? Certainly, he can't be angry at Martha or Mary or even these other mourners. Gary Birds says it, I think, very well in his commentary. He says, he is overcome by the futility of this sorrowful scene in the light of the reality of the resurrection. God's people possess knowledge of life and they should possess a faith that claims victory at the grave. But here they stand, overcome in seeming defeat. And yet here stands with them the one in whom victory, life, and resurrection were powerful realities. Jesus is angry at death itself and the devastation that it brings. His only interest now is to locate this tomb and to begin to demonstrate his divine power over humanity's foe. What does this tell us? It tells us, I think, very simply, God calls us to hope. Jesus is angry because this sense of hopelessness uh, in in light of death and response to death has seem, seemingly overwhelmed these people. They are resolved. They have no hope, and he's saying there is always hope in God. There is always hope in the one who God has sent, and he is going to demonstrate just how much hope they should have. He calls us to have great hope. And I think we should remember as we read this that the Christian life should be a life lived in perpetual hope. Yes, we're going to have grief in our lives and we will grieve from time to time. Jesus himself grieves in this passage. But we should never be resigned to a state of hopelessness. The Christian life, the power of God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit says there is always hope. We should live in a state of perpetual hope because with our great Savior, there is always hope. No situation is hopeless if Jesus is involved, for he is the resurrection, the one who can turn even death on itself. And so the story reaches its climactic ending here. Verse 38, Jesus angry in his spirit again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, Lest we buy into the theory that Lazarus is not actually dead, we must quickly realize there is no way this is true. Mary's objections are the main evidence. Jesus arrives at this tomb. He says, open it. She says, no, it'll stink. This guy's been dead for four days. Do you know the kind of smell a four-day-old body would have, Jesus? It might cause us all to pass out. But what is Jesus' response to her objections? Do you not remember what I have told you? that you will see the glory of God. And what is this glory of God? What is Jesus talking about? He's saying, you will see the way God has revealed himself through his son. This is what he's beginning to talk about. You are going to see just who I am. And so she gives her approval and they roll away the burial stone. I can imagine at this point, the disciples, all these professional mourners, the flute players, Mary, Martha, anybody else that has come with them to this graveside, to this tomb, it's dead quiet. I can't imagine they're still cruising on their flutes over there when they open up this tomb. Everybody's anxious and waiting to see what will happen. The tension in the story is almost overwhelming. But what happens? Jesus prays. He lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And the final point that we see here, God always hears our prayers. Jesus says, Father, you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, and that they might believe that you have sent me. There's no doubt building throughout this story what is going to happen. We understand at the very beginning of this whole story, almost from the opening scene when Jesus says he's not going to die, that something miraculous is going to happen. Like we as the readers aren't anticipating, like is he actually going to be alive? Is he not going to be alive? We know he's going to be alive. But his delay in his returning, the whispers of the onlookers, have all been helping to build this tension and wondering just how is this man going to become alive. They're going to come alive through the petitions of Jesus. He's going to come alive because the Father has answered the prayer and given the Son the authority to call this man out of the grave. And so Jesus stands before this grave after thanking the Father. He doesn't asked the Father to raise him. He says, I thank you that you have heard me, that you've granted this to me, that people will know just who I am, the Son of God, the Christ, the one that you have uniquely sent into the world. And he calls this man out of the grave. And so we are left now at the end of this story, Much like the crowd standing at the entrance of this tomb as this bumbling mummy-looking man wrapped in cloth, can't even see because his face is wrapped up, comes walking out of this tomb. Our jaws hit the floor. Like, what? And we're left finally with a resolution of the answer that's been asked over and over and over in the book of John. Who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man, that commands the wind, who commands all of the weather, who raises the sick to health, who heals men blind from birth. Who really is this man? And we're left here as this dead man gets on his feet and walks out of the grave, understanding that this man is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Lazarus is healthy, He's restored. It doesn't happen according to the timing of the sisters. It doesn't happen in any way that they had perhaps imagined when this whole scene is beginning to unfold and they send the messengers to get him in the countryside. But the result of this whole episode is people see this man Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not a great healer. He is indeed the Christ. And if they have faith in him, if they trust in him, he will not only care for them, he will give them eternal life. And that's the same thing it tells us today. Additionally, we should be reminded of Hebrews 7.25. It's a great passage. It talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, constantly interceding for his people. And we should be reminded that this very day, Jesus hears our requests just like he receives this messenger who came to him in the countryside. And he brings them before the father who always hears his son. And he takes them to the father and he still says, I thank you that you have heard me. And we can have confidence that our prayers then are making their way before the great God who sits on his throne on high. We should have confidence that our requests, even though they're imperfect, are still being presented to the father on our behalf that he might act according to his good and perfect timing in our lives. We should be left with hope that this man Jesus can command even the dead to rise again. Let's pray.